Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, August 15th, the work-life edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thursday Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Woo. Before we get into today's episode, June, I want to hear about what you thought about what was in our email inbox this week. Well, let me round up what was in our email. Our last episode where we talked, just to remind you, about Jane Mayer's Al Franken story in The New Yorker, Cara Bolanek's New York Magazine story, The Most Gullible Man in Cambridge, and the new season of Veronica Mars. It generated more reader email than usual, and it was mostly extreme, either (laughs) extremely supportive or extremely critical of our takes. On Franken, one emailer who was from Minnesota said that appalling photograph, not from SNL in the 80s, but from the year before he ran from the Senate, is evidence he needed to go for that alone. Therefore, all the discussion of whether or not he is innocent is completely beside the point, IMO. Others thought we were naive about the politics of bringing down Franken. One emailer said, quote, we ignored clear political motivation of initial accusation and customary weak response from Democrats. I think we were aware of that. And another said, I was turned off by the mayor and Franklin bashing, by the attitude that even innocent mistakes are inexcusable. And last one on this, one woman noted that the Al Franken story had caused an unusually contentious discussion in her progressive family. She Mm. said, the Franken debacle is the only issue I can recall leading to heated arguments, totally opposing perspectives. And interestingly, the divide almost neatly falls along generational lines. My parents were extremely sympathetic to Franken and felt his punishment didn't fit the crime especially with an admitted sexual predator in the White House. My husband, brother, sister-in-law and I all have similar reactions to those you all expressed in the episode, that men have for too long gotten away with demeaning sexist behaviour. And on the most gullible man in Cambridge story, a couple of emailers said, quote, I was amazed how little attention was given to this man's position as a victim in this situation. He was the victim of a con game. While at least one other said, we were foolish to take his version of events as gospel. But please do keep those emails coming in. Speaking just for myself, I would say that we're not trying to give the official feminist take. As we all know, there <laughs> oh, isn't I one. Am. I am. Well. <laughs> Mine is. Mine's official. <laughs> mine's, mine's a bootleg only. Uh, we're offering our own responses to these stories. And we do want to hear from you, even if you disagree with us. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great to read so many um People who were who thought that we did a bad job, but for completely different reasons, <laughs> making both sides mad. <laughs> All right. Today's show, we have some similarly juicy topics. First, we're going to discuss three women, Lisa Tadeo's new nonfiction book that chronicles the sexual and romantic lives of three women. 
Then we'll talk about a New York Times modern love column about a straight woman who was, quote, seduced then scorned by her work wife, who was a lesbian. We've got a couple lesbians on the panel today to give the official <laughs> take. Uh, but like. Finally, we will remember the life and work of Toni Morrison, the exalted novelist and teller of black American stories who died last week. Uh, Marsha, want to tell us about our Slate Plus segment? Today we ask the question, is hating vocal fry sexist? Incredible that we've never taken this on in a Slate Plus segment before. (laughs) Let's hear a little snippet of that conversation. It's so interesting because... I understand the impulse then to try to shape shift in order to fit in. If when I get interviewed by an outlet like NPR or if I do something on PBS, I find myself saying, okay, like what does a historian sound like in Mm. these venues? And all of a sudden I'm like whispering into microphones. It's like (laughs) AMSR. And it's really hard to just say, I sound like I sound. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that piece uh, that they published actually really resonated with me. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know whether hating vocal fry is sexist, you can start your free two-week Slate Plus trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. Okay, three women. It's Lisa Tadeo's first book. It was published last month to mostly positive, occasionally ecstatic reviews. Nicole, I know you have a lot of feelings about it. (laughs) Tell us about this book. So Lisa Tadeo, who has been a contributor to such places as New York Magazine and Esquire, wrote a a book that's considered narrative journalism. It is nonfiction. I just want to reiterate that because it does read like a piece of fiction. And there are some turns, some very literary turns in the in the book. Um, But Three Women focuses on Lena, a stay at home mom in Indiana, whose husband does not kiss or touch her in any way at all. And so she then has an affair with an old high school love that she had. Then we also have Maggie, a young woman who is telling the story of when she was in high school and she embarked on an improper relationship with her high school teacher and she's from North Dakota. And finally, we have Sloan, a restaurant owner in New England, based in Rhode Island, I believe, whose husband encourages her and likes to watch her have sex with other men. And they have a pretty robust sex life. Have sex every day. Yeah, sex every day. But it seems there's more to that story than even (laughs) (laughs) even all of that. (laughs) Um, And so I... I guess just to get into discussing it, I find this book aggressively okay. Um, (laughs) It it was just, you know, Tadeo in various interviews and everything, she says that she chose these three women because of how relatable they were. And here I am, this woman, this black woman from the South, and I'm just like, oh, why am I supposed to relate to these three white women from the Midwest and the Northeast. I think North Dakota is considered Northwest. I mean, Mid- I mean Mid- Midwest. Midwest, yeah. Sure. There are no women of color featured in the book. Um, there's like a quick little note of somebody who ended up obviously not being a part of the book. Who was not um, only black, but also bisexual. Yes. Darn. Um, couldn't fit either of those <laughs> two identities into the right. book. <laughs> All these women, uh, Lena, Maggie, and Sloan, are considered straights, even though Sloan does have sex with women. She does admit to preferring having sex with women, but she is considered or coded as straight 
and I thought that was interesting. And, you know, I what really bothered me about this piece, beyond the lack of viewpoints or perspectives, is the fact that no one was satisfied with her life. We could not get a single example of one woman who was sexually satisfied, who was happy with who she was in her body and her sex life. This book approaches what women want or what what are the true desires of women from a place of lack. And it is mm. so disappointing that mm-hmm. there is not someone who is fulfilled, who is happy, who is engaging in a, a lush sexual life. Even if someone was asexual and not having sex at all, who are someone who is aromantic, not interested in that, there are plenty of people, plenty of women who are satisfied. And, you know, there's been a big deal made about the fact that Tadeo went looking for people to put in the, she went analog, right? She plastered up posters and, you know, created a women's group, which is where she found Lena to talk about their sex lives. And over eight years, six cross-country trips, all these different ways of reaching out to women to ask them to talk about their sex lives. There was nobody queer. There were no women of color. There were no no one from the South. There was no one who was happy. I just, that, re- they, that really bothers me about the book overall. There's, there's just everything is from a place of lack. And also it seems to be at some point uh, telling us that women are the real enemies mm-hmm. of our own sex lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, that we have all these examples of men mistreating the three women in, in the book, but it turns out that the real problem is we should never let other women see us happy. Um, as yeah, the, she as literally Lisa says that. Yeah. That's like the, her yeah. mom's wisdom that frames the book. Right. So I don't want to say I did not enjoy the book, but I was just found it also lacking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I don't want, I would never prescribe this book to someone to read. If like, if you want to know what, what happens in women's sex life, <laughs> read this book. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So yeah, that's, I, that's my spiel. <laughs> I think the book suffered a lot from the f- the framing of it and, and from Tadeo's sort of overpromising and her publisher and publicist's overpromising. She says that the three women's stories came to stand in for the whole of what longing in America looks like, which it it doesn't. It's not. It's, right. you know, it's really three variations on one story. And Sloan's story is 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 very slim. It doesn't take up much of the book at all. But it's the same story, basically. It's the white woman who's doing something sexually taboo, who has this immense difficulty feeling out or asserting her own desires, who in all three cases finds her sex life steered or at least circumscribed by men who are, you know, abusive or neglectful or absent or just really boring or, or you know, have <laughs> desires that sort of overcome her own. And yet these women in most of the cases still feel just so grateful to have these men at all. Like, especially the two who take up the vast majority of the book, Lena and Maggie, their stories, these women just come off as so incredibly needy and mm-hmm. desperate and like just grateful for whatever scraps are thrown to them, which mm-hmm. fine if that's, you know, their lives. But the fact that the vast majority of this book on three women that's supposed to stand in for female desire in America is focused on these these two women who whose lives are uh, sort of thrown into disarray by men who treat them poorly. It was very disappointing to me. At the same time, I kind of think that everybody could benefit from this sort of like literary and dramatic telling of their own sex lives. 
it was hard for me to read the book and not think about like how would I dramatize like such an encounter <laughs> in my own life. I have a different view of this book. Reading it as a writer, I had a lot of mixed feelings because on one hand, writing is so terrible and hard, and reporting is really terrible and hard. And so the idea of spending so much time with a subject over years and really getting them to describe the things that were described. And so in many ways, I felt like the small parts of the book were really good. It's, mm-hmm. it's desire to be bigger than it was, I think, is where the problem started. And so I think you're mm-hmm. right, Christina, this idea of overpromising, which is like how you sell books. That's yeah. what's so terrible about it. But I, I understand that. And as a writer, I know that feeling of saying like, and therefore, this is what it looks like. But at the same time, there were these quieter moments in the book that really, really resonated with me, not so much about women managing their desire, but I think the ways that women manage contempt toward women in society Mm -hmm. is what I really felt like the through line was, that the men in these women's lives, even when they were good, there was so much contempt between them because of 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 structural misogyny. And so for me, I felt like their sex lives was one way of telling a story about misogyny. But that's because that's what I wanted to see in the text, (laughs) not because that was what was presented. And so I think that the idea that this is like a tableau of women's sexuality when it's three white women who have a lot going on, I'm not with that. But I do think that as someone who has not had any of the experiences that these women have had, the fact that they were constantly negotiating how men viewed them and how they had to make a decision on how they viewed themselves, I could actually relate to that. Even Mm -hmm. though I've made different Mm -hmm. choices, there was a real sympathy that I had for these women in the resources they had available to them to make a decision about who they are in light of all yeah. of the noise. Yeah, I I've have a sort of a, think a similar attitude to yours, Marcia, that of course, yes, we just have to accept there, there is a there is an original sin in this book and there's, there's no getting around that. I think there wasn't much that in my life I could relate to in these very relatable women. <laughs> but at the same time, there were moments it, because of the style of writing, which is, as you said, Nicole, is somewhere between nonfiction and fiction. Like it's a fictional style used telling a nonfictional story, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it was at times overblown and laughable. But most of the time, I really liked it. It felt fresh. It felt different. I would never felt bogged down in the book. I was always wanting to turn the page. And there were moments where I thought Tadeo really evoked Feelings, like not feelings, feelings that I have had, even though I have not been in any of those situations, none of those specifics related to me. But just sometimes it was so evocative on a weird that just kind of stirred something in me by kind of touching another part in another place kind of thing. So, for example, just this is not an example of Tadeo's beautiful writing, but this really got to me. It's about Maggie, who was the uh, woman who was 
it's really hard to describe it because Tadeo uses her language or her point of view, her perspective. And so as far as she's concerned, it's a relationship with the teacher. But I understand that saying that is problematic. And she says of Maggie, she worries that she too will go to bed with a Fargo boy and wake up five years later, pregnant with a third kid, watching television in threadbare Uggs. Uh, again, <laughs> you've had that fear. Sp- I but I like I've not had that fear but I've had that feeling like that sent me to an apartment like 35 years ago or something when I was like you know I I was in a relationship and I was in that person's I was in her apartment and I like I just had a feeling of like I this isn't this isn't the right relationship and that sent me to that place. I've never owned Uggs. I've never slept with a Fargo boy. I never thought I'm going <laughs> to wake up with three kids. And yet, it really like that just sent me to that deep place, which is, is an achievement. And so I do think that she does deserve some praise for getting into pretty deep places with these women. Now, whether we can't know because of the weird somewhere in between style who who's exactly whose voice it is because mm-hmm. they don't sound all that different Sloan is a little bit different but it, it's you don't I didn't really have a clear picture like if you just kind of given a piece of of character I wouldn't I don't think I would have immediately said okay that's Maggie that's Lena but the, you know there, there was some just getting inside people's heads or bodies or deeper feelings that I really did appreciate Yeah, I I had a lot of questions about her process as I was reading it, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. was almost more interesting to me to think about than the substance of the book. Um, And it made me think of that. I can't wait for our scientist listeners to school me on this. But there's like a principle in physics where it's like the act of observing a particle or like measuring where a particle Mm -hmm. is changes the particle. Like you can't Mm -hmm. touch or observe or like obtain any information about a particle without fundamentally changing something about that particle. I don't know exactly what I'm talking about, but it's like just the act of filtering these stories through the the women's like own minds and mm-hmm. also then through Tadeo's writing fundamentally changes them somehow. So part of it is like, you know, how honest can someone be even with themselves? Like how accurately can someone even process their own experiences within their own minds? How accurately can they explain that to somebody else? How accurate do they want to be with somebody else, especially when they know that that experience is going to be put in a book? And then, you know, today it wants to tell a good story. And so I Mm -hmm. kept wondering, like, how much is she, she has said in interviews that I've read with her, you know, I asked the same question so many times. And, you know, each time you get a little bit more information, or maybe you get a little closer to the truth, or maybe they start to come up with connections in their own minds. But I think part of it was probably her writing something and being like, hey, does this sound right? Like, is this what you were kind of thinking? I, I know part of it was also that she she started that discussion group. I think you mentioned, Nicole, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like a lot of the interactions that she describes in the book with Lena and other women, which she uses to support this theory of, you know, women not supporting other women or women harshly judging other women's desires. You know, she created the conditions for that to happen. So it it, it caused me to think a lot about 
the accuracy of of stories and and the stories we tell about ourselves and you know I think today I sometimes made you know sort of universal observations or declarations based on these small moments in these women's lives that sometimes had may have had universal resonance and sometimes didn't but you know it definitely made me feel things it especially made mm-hmm. me feel things from the times in my life when I've been with men but then I was like you know, then I graduated to like, <laughs> you know, women. Um, and and I, I, not that that's necessarily the journey that everyone has to go through, but I do think for, a, for lot of, a lot of women, they graduate from that kind of man into like better men do or better they, relationships. Though? I'm going I'm to push back against this idea. Because, <laughs> I don't know. You, you uh, seem uh, to, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I just, I feel like this is such a meditation on shame. Hmm. And Hmm. what people do with the shame that is brought into your family by birth and like socialization and the shame that is kind of either challenged or encouraged as you form friend groups. And then you're an adult and you have to choose relationships. And so I I mean, this is like so bleak. On one hand, I want to say that this is such an inaccurate portrayal of relationships. And at the same time, there are a lot of people I know who I see their, like, I see these characters and people I know very well, I will not name them on this (laughs) podcast. But there is that real tension, right, of kind of seeing either what part of the stories that she's telling, which parts resonate. And I think this idea, uh, Christina, I, I agree with you, this idea of like, okay, then you move on to something else. Like you learn a lesson, you're like, ooh, that was bad. Let me try something different. But I think there is a suggestion that there are a portion of us in humanity who don't. Yeah, right? that and the maybe deep, it's because that's not available to everybody, depending on where you live and who or, you know. Or it's scary, or there's deep comfort, mm-hmm. right, in the way that that shame mm-hmm. becomes sustaining. She opens up the book with this story about when her mom was in Italy, she would she would walk to work every day, and this man would masturbate behind her, which is just such a terrifying portrayal of an interaction. And the way that she wondered, like, why didn't why wasn't this a problem for my mom? Why didn't she do X and Y? And then she realized that there's like a whole infrastructure of people telling her like, oh, he's just an old guy. It makes him happy. No big deal. And that I think I think opening in that way is this kind of frame where like you see it. Right. You see the deep desire for the writer to want her mother to make a different choice and her mother to believe that there are no choices. Mm-hmm. And I think that. There's something about this book that really, I think, makes me more compassionate towards the people in my life or the stories you read about, like, why didn't the person do this or that? And it's like, well, you know, there's there's something strangely sustaining about the shame that we grow up with. And there's something very comforting about the conditions that we know. Hmm. Oh, it's so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> read yeah, this book, folks. I- <laughs> I just was very upset that so many of the women seem to be in their position because they settled. Mm -hmm. Lena experienced some trauma as a high school student and went to college um, basically in that same town or same area. So the the experience of that kind of floated with her, the reputation that people gave her floated with her and so I think that's part of why she ended up in her marriage because basically she was like there's no one else coming to talk to me and I guess you know there was no 
I guess she didn't think maybe I should move away from here or, you know, again, the connection couldn't. to family. Yeah. Like, the, you know, I don't think that that was very clear or maybe I have pushed it out of my mind from the book um, that she felt like maybe she didn't have a choice. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I feel like this book is fine, but also a mess. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Like you can read it, but also, you know, maybe don't take it to heart. Listeners, let us know what you thought of the book. Our email address is thewaves at slate.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last week, the New York Times published a modern love column under the headline, Seduced Then Scorned by My Work Wife. It was a real trip. Uh, <laughs> the author is a woman by the name of Carrie Malinowski. She lives in Arizona. Her essay starts off with a little background about her disenchantment with her husband. She calls him her big, handsome husband. He's depressed. He's uninterested. Watches TVs that are mounted on the walls in restaurants, which drives Melanowski into the arms, figuratively speaking, of a woman at work. So this woman is a member of her, quote-unquote, girl tribe at a workplace where she says every lifestyle was acceptable. That's how you know there's going to be a gay in it. There's a <laughs> lifestyle. She writes that the two women would flirt, that the, the work wife, this lesbian who she describes as out, out, out. That's three outs. So by that point, it's like you're out, then you're back in, then you're out again, I guess. Um, she <laughs> She says the work wife would flash her legs on a daily basis just to seduce Malinowski. She would like everything Malinowski put on Facebook. Uh, As far as I can tell, there was some texting, but they didn't hang out outside work. And yet Malinowski feels scorned when this work wife starts redirecting her energies toward another woman at work. And then all of a sudden, Malinowski admits to her husband that she's lonely. He gets treated for depression and they're back together in each other's good graces. Marriage solved. Work wife re-relegated to the lesbian bar or wherever she hung out outside their workplace, which, by the way, was a behavioral health clinic. They're all social workers. Wow. My first response to this piece was that the entire drama and relationship seemed like a total invention of the author. Uh Um, Especially because she says they never even spoke about their alleged feelings for each other, nor did they speak about the end of their, you know, so-called affair. You know, reading this as a an out, out, out woman, <laughs> I felt like a little bit disturbed that this woman mm-hmm. would you know, put this sort of one-sided narrative in the New York Times where it seems to me like she's sort of projecting her own feelings of neglect, her unmet needs, her curiosities onto this butch, self-described butch, in scare quotes, lesbian. And I was, I there was a, a part of me also that wondered why the New York Times would publish this piece where it seems like everybody is easily identifiable um, mm-hmm. to their employer. I'm really curious about what you guys thought about this piece, which generated some very affirming for me conversation on social media. 
This was terrible. <laughs> New York Times, yes. hire more writers of color so you don't have bad coverage on race. Like, deal with your, like, saddling up to the Trump administration. Like, there are priorities. And while I usually enjoy modern love because it's something interesting, this is just a workplace with a bunch of people with bad boundaries. I think that there's something a little homophobic about this that did uh, not yeah. sit well with me. And relationships are sometimes really difficult and you have to talk to your partner or make choices. <laughs> Why is this? This is like, I, this is so bad on so many levels. And I, and I, I kind of find it appalling that the comfort of this coworker with bad boundaries, but it's like she's a girl. And so this so gets exciting. really weird and exciting. It's like st- everyone stop. And also social workers are supposed to be kind of trained in a social justice model and approach towards human interaction and interpersonal process. And so I don't like any of this. Mm-hmm. Unlike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't like it either. I thought it was, it reminded me of when men have harassed me or men, you know, tend to harass people in general um but you know it, you know you just you're walking down the street you say hi to somebody and then he thinks that that means you have to have a whole conversation and he wants to get your number and stuff like that so that seems to be very similar here where this you know she says complimenting her legs and then she incorporated ways of showing her legs from you On know a the daily basis and how 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 as like, one of like, my friends th- put it like what butch is going around showing her legs like a lady of the night in a saloon like Sticking yes. her leg out from behind a corner, happened. like none what? of this happened. How? <laughs> like how? Yeah, how? I mean, was she wearing a skirt? I'm uh, sure like, she was wearing a garter at all times. I mean, like, <laughs> really, one. It doesn't make any sense. And then to just get to this ending where all she had to do was communicate with her husband Amazing. after talking about how it they was had like this great one relationship at the very end. Yeah. yeah, she was just like, "Oh, I'm I communicated." my needs to my husband he addressed them and then we're okay so what the hell why did you even go through this why didn't you do that in the first place you know it's it's just ridiculous you know I'm just like if this is her way of saying that she's by curious quote unquote whatever you didn't have to put that in the New York Times right. <laughs> and that's that's the thing to me like you know enjoy your journey but like you're a real person I feel bad talking shit about this terrible piece because it was written by a real person who has real views and might be listening to this. But no, just don't do it. Do not put your business in the New York Times, especially in this way that I'm sorry, there is no one in this world who will not be crapping on this. (laughs) What she did was exploit her co-workers, not Mm. only the one that she's clearly talking about, it was, I chose not to do any research, but apparently it was very easy to find her and her, you know, her YouTube People? channel and blah, blah, blah. Oh, the author, not the yeah, self-described the author. butch. No. And, you know, let's leave that poor woman alone. Although yeah. I am very curious, very so curious. curious for her point of view on this. But, but like, you know, there are, there are points that could have been made at some point, you know, like, uh, but... This was just a very bad way of exploring one's own feelings in, in, in too public a place. Yeah, you know, and it dovetails nicely with three women because, totally. again, you have a woman coming from this place of lack in her marriage, in her relationship with a man, and finding a way to feel, feel that lack outside of her marriage in possibly 
you know, inappropriate ways. But it just it's also seems like maybe she was, you know, maybe from this the other side of the story, this coworker is gonna be like, No, she was always coming up to me and touching me <laughs> and doing you know, staring me in my, my eyes. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everyone, a reminder, this is not what work is for. I hate expression like my work husband, work wife. No, not how it works. Like the thing that bothers me about this is this kind of slippery slope. Like and then we fell into this thing and then we like fell into sex and then I I'm sleeping with my coworker. I think that for people who want to be in a monogamous relationship, there's so much boundary setting that just happens. Um, in order for that system to work. And so it seems like her husband and her had an agreement for monogamy. And so this idea that the workplace is then the place to like push boundaries really bothers me. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. think the this kind of making these relationships seem kind of cute mm-hmm. or yeah. using them as a vehicle to say like, and then at work we can really cut up. Like it's not good. It's not good for anyone. No, no. That's not what work is for. not when your work, I mean, I don't want to say especially because this is not appropriate in any workplace, but when your work involves like the needs of people accessing social work. And, and it seems like she talks about how this is like occupying her every day and she would give this person the silent treatment, which is also really inappropriate at work and is kind of why these relationships aren't supposed to happen in the first place, because then it affects you doing your job. Um, but yeah, the I'm, I just keep trying to think about her motivation for writing yeah. this. Like yeah. it feels like maybe this feels like her coming out, like she feels kind of subversive, that this is something brave um, or like evidence of the richness of her desire and her love life or sex life, even though there was neither love nor sex in this piece. So I'm like, is this her trying to feel exotic or, you know, she's going to show up showing wearing these T-shirts saying, how dare you assume I'm straight and, you know, shoving her way to the front of the pride parade. Or maybe this is maybe she gets turned off of gay people forever because she's like, oh, this is what she led me on. And this is sort of like a temperamental hussy in my workplace, like flashing her knees all over the place. Um, I think another motivation could have been that she wants revenge on this woman, that she feels angry that she, you know, interprets the other woman's redirection of energies as being scorned. And so now she wants to say, like, "Hmm, look, I'm back with my husband and everything's fine. And like, you didn't get to me in the way you thought you did. And you were just sort of a safe space for testing out these like innocent sort of pseudo infidelities that would have never been appropriate with a man. But because it was a woman, it was sort of like cute and fun. Yeah, one of the things that came up both around Three Women and this piece was queer people saying, are straights okay? Like, are straight women okay? Because, like, and clearly that's a slightly, like, you know, harsh view of it. But, like, come on. Like, take care of your business. Don't bring this on lesbians. This, like, I know I can just, I can see this situation. I don't know if it's the specific situation because like Lisa Tadeo, she doesn't, you know, whatever. But she, there is a projection onto this woman in the office of her 
like sexual interest hurt, which is, you know, almost certainly, I'm sure I recognize this. It's like a little sort of gentle interest because she's just kind of flirting. She's just kind of, as you said, Christina, having this safe space for like some, it's like a crush with with like a slightly, you know, physical element to it. Nothing's going to happen. But meanwhile, the woman has, the lesbian has to deal with this, you know, emotional baggage, emotional labor that's being put on her without asking, um, as far as we can tell. And like, just come on. Don't put it in the New York Times and don't bring it to the office. I have a question about the Modern Love column. Um, so do these people write in? I mean, obviously, I've, I've read the, you know, articles or essays or whatever before. But do these people write in and are they edited? Because I'm just like, why didn't the editor ask for specifics? Because, you know, once the work wife, quote unquote, moves on to this cute new hire, right, Who, which I read to be younger than the woman mm. writing this. Mm-hmm. So once she moves on, the writer says, my work wife flaunted this new friendship, relished in telling me the juicy details as if rubbing my nose in it. How? Give us an example because I don't understand. This is very vague and it's not helping your case to try to say <laughs> if you're trying to prove, yes, this woman was you know, flirting with me. This doesn't prove anything. Right. Was she I just saying, like, her. Yeah. hey, I, our new hire is really talented. She's gr- a great social worker. Like, right. You know, or it, it maybe, you know, anything. just say if she was like, just give give this paperwork to the new hire. Does that mean <laughs> <laughs> that she was throwing it in her face? You know, like what? I'm just really upset by the lack of detail mm-hmm. to strengthen whatever case the writer is making. And, I, you know, again, it just seems very... There's like there. I do agree that there's some kind of ulterior motive that she's perhaps trying to get revenge, or maybe she wants the woman back. And it's like, look, this had to be like this, right? So you have to give us more. And it's just inappropriate to be texting somebody late at night, you know, coworkers. Anyway, I don't know. I just this whole thing. Just I don't. I don't understand why I'm reading it. You know it what I mean? Like, like why? It, it read to me like a chapter out of Gone Girl or something like this mm-hmm. unreliable narrator where mm-hmm. there's just so many blanks left unfilled. Like you said, Nicole, that like my mind is already racing to be like, well, what's what's the actual story here? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the yeah the text that she says she got from the the work wife one apparently said after you know their the work wife breakup or whatever it said still heart you like in what context was that text sent was it because the author of this piece was sending you know hundreds of texts a day saying like why are you spending so much time with this new hire and not me and the other person was like still heart you like uh (laughs) tiptoeing away slowly we do not know Yeah. yeah but yeah i don't think that there's any fact checking that goes on in a modern love column i think it's instructive perhaps that the author has written essays for four different volumes of Chicken Soup for the Soul in addition to this column. So I feel like this might be somebody who, you know, goes through life sort of searching for little mini dramas to turn into tidy essays that, that you know, purport to say something larger about the state of life and love and maybe actually don't. And in that case, I certainly hope there's nobody in my workplace who is gathering string for their own column that misrepresents our relationship. On um, the other hand, this this column did generate, I'm sure, if, if the slate slack is anything to go by, 
a lot of like hand wringing and, and joyful slacking and like, can you believe this shit slacking? So, you know, it did that for the world on yeah, Friday true. afternoon. Listeners, did you read it? What did you think? Have you had a work wife? Is this your work wife? Email us at thewavesatsleep.com. Our final topic for today, Toni Morrison, the Nobel laureate and great American novelist, died last week in the Bronx at age 88. June, why don't you tell us about your experience of Morrison's work? I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that Toni Morrison may have been the first black American woman writer whose works I read. And I do remember quite clearly those early books like Tar Baby and Song of Solomon and Sula and The Bluest Eye. Her big book, of course, was Beloved. And actually, that was the last of hers that I read. She was, I think it's true to say, like the consensus choice of the great American novelist. Yet for me, her later books were a little hard to read. I think Jazz was the last one that I even tried. But her books, you know, they've dealt with history, especially the history of slavery. And I think the thing that most got to me, uh, that I most connected with as somebody from a very different background, was this notion of people who are generally ignored or treated with disdain being seen and their point of view being represented or their beauty being seen, their their kindness and the goodness in their actions, however severe and harsh those actions may be. This person who was the first, not only the first African-American, the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, this huge, huge uh, figure, and yet also, as we saw from many of the kind of responses to her death last week, touched so many people's lives. We don't often see that with these kind of exalted mm-hmm. writers, but this is this was an exalted great American novelist who also had a very meaningful uh, and often quite strong impact on many, many people's lives. One thing that I'm grateful for and and that often happens when you know somebody of her stature and influence dies is in reading all of these tributes to her mm-hmm. and remembrances it, it gives me the impetus to go and read and learn more about her so i've been reading some you know old interviews she's done you know i've read a couple of her novels i read the bluest eye and beloved but, you know, now I've, like, put a hold on a couple of the others at the library, which, like, I think a lot of people have that idea because now there's a long waiting <laughs> list. But, you know, I, I, I always wish that somebody didn't need to die for me to go and do that. Mm-hmm. But I, for instance, have been reading some old interviews that she did. And there was one sort of clip going around where a, a broadcast journalist asked her, you know, when would she start writing about white people? And in all of her elegance and poise, Morrison just said, you know, do you realize what a powerfully racist question that was? You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center and being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm-hmm. And saying, you know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am 
is the mainstream. And, you know, this was not a recent interview. And it just, like, gave me pause to think about how rare it is and how validating it can be to hear somebody say, like, these particular stories are essential. They're rich in meaning, you know, and, and not only that, they're worthy of sort of poetic flourish and mythology and allegory. They contain universal truths and also specific truths. We don't need to sandwich them in between anybody else's stories for them to be worthy of the the highest levels of American literature. And it also made me think about how like what strength it must have taken for her to go out there and promote her work to a media that seemed actively hostile to it. You know, I read another interview she did with Time in 1989 that where the interviewer Bonnie Angela was basically asking her to solve the problems created by American racism just because she writes about, you know, the legacy of American racism. You know, this interviewer is asking her, like, do you have any specific proposals for improving the racial climate in America? How do you break the cycle of poverty? Do you see a way out of these, like, large number of single-parent households and the crisis in unwed teenage pregnancies, like these insults that were visited upon her? And she still continued to create some of the best literature that this country has seen. I I had read some of her books, but I I didn't have occasion to really understand that aspect of her, her influence until, you know, these past couple of weeks since her death. I love Toni Morrison. I do not know what kind of writer, reader, person I would be if I had never read anything by her. The first book that I read was The Bluest Eye. I read it very young. I was too young to be reading it, but I was intrigued by it because it's actually a very thin novel. Mm-hmm. And when I first saw it, I, I it was a very old copy. The copy that I found, it had her picture on the back of it. And it was a woman that looked like someone in my family on a book. And at that point, I was already a voracious reader. I would write little stories for um, my spelling lessons and stuff like that. So to see a black woman as the writer of whatever this book was in my hand, I was like, I have to read this book. The Bluest Eye begins each chapter with a line from these old C. Dick Run books, which are very popular, you know, at the turn of the 20th century and things like that. So you see Dick Run, see Jane Run, whatever. And so she would, with each chapter, she would begin with a line from that and they would blur together. And I was like, what is, why is she doing this? Again, I'm just, you know, I'm a child. I'm looking at this, um, what I now know is, you know, creative license and what she was trying to do. She was making commentary about the fact that children's books would show white kids doing, you know, having very happy lives and things like that. And so The Bluest Eye is about a young woman, Claudia is telling the story of a young girl that she, her family adopted after some terrible things happened, Pecola Breedlove. And Pecola is raped by her father um, and gets pregnant and she has a breakdown and she thinks that her life will be better if she has blue eyes. And that book, again, I did, you know, when I first read it, I didn't really understand it, but I knew enough to know at that point that there were people in my life, people around, you know, my life in Nashville, Tennessee, that wanted, I don't, I don't want to say they wanted to be white, but they did not want to suffer 
the consequences of being black anymore. So I understood that even as a child. And then when I continue to read her work, it's just she's so amazing. She's also one of the few people, I should say, who gave black Midwesterners a place in black literature. As a lot of black literature, or at least, you know, that was put into the canon comes, um, is based in the South or it deals with, you know, migration and things like that. And she based a lot of things in Ohio, which is where she was from or where she lived. And she was just incredible. Her books are very dense. They can Mm -hmm. be difficult to get through. And I think that that is also a metaphor that she's laying out for Black life in America, getting through the trauma of, you know, the results of American slavery, which is what Beloved is about. Beloved is about the ghost of American slavery coming back and staying and the consequences that are far reaching and never ending, it seems. So for me, Toni Morrison is the end all be all. And to <laughs> see, you know, I was very upset that she passed and there was no hint that she had been you know, unwell. I mean, obviously she was getting older and she was using a wheelchair more often later in life and things like that. But I didn't know she was at this point where she could go away from here. I think the thing that I most appreciate about Toni Morrison's life, I don't read that much fiction. I'm such a Philistine. Please, listeners, don't at me. <laughs> I always think I'm a Philistine for reading too much fiction. Oh my fiction. gosh, I don't read that much fiction. But I've read everything that Toni Morrison has written. And one of the things that I think has been really beautiful about these tributes is that she resists every trope that of the great writer. She was not a recluse. She was not unkind to the people who loved her. She did not abandon her responsibilities as an educator. She did not bemoan parenthood as ruining her creativity. So every time I think people try to frame her in relationship to our idea of what the great American author should look like, should be like, should act like, There have been these wonderful testimonies to say, actually, she decided to play out this role in ways that really disrupt all of these notions. And I think that it's that kind of way that her life very much mirrored the richness and the complexity of her text. I actually once saw her at a Vanderbilt book signing in Nashville. And it was interesting because we were all, you know, queued up to get our book signed. And this one woman had an original copy of Song of Solomon, just a beautiful hardback book. And she gave it to Toni Morrison to sign. And Toni Morrison said, girl, what is this? This thing is falling apart. Go get a new book. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll sign that one. (laughs) And, you know, she was, you know, she was teasing her, but also she refused to sign that old book, you know? I've so much enjoyed on Twitter the black women who I think are the you know, elders of academia right now, tweeting back and forth their Toni Morrison stories about like getting drinks in Paris and going shoe shopping. (laughs) And that one time she sent me this thing. And in this really important way, I think what her legacy is also about is modeling a kind of collegiality and a kind of Mm. warmth, you know, the way that she talked about Toni Cade Bambara and their friendship and understanding that writing is not a hobby. Writing is not an afterthought. It's the center of a person's intellectual, personal, emotional life. And I think that of all the tributes that have been circulated, my very favorite one was written by Veronica Chambers in the August 6th New York Times, where they just have um, Toni Morrison dancing photos of the author at work and play. And she's like at a disco. And (laughs) she's on stage with Bill T. Jones and Max Roche. I mean, there's these incredible ways in which her genius was not a prison. 
Mm. It was actually the source of her freedom. And I think that for people like myself who part of our lives is actually writing things down and making ourselves vulnerable to judgment, there's something really kind of beautiful about that vulnerability being a source of joy rather than the source of terror and dread that it can be. And so I think with that, we have a wonderful opportunity to just get a model of how someone makes their life around their craft. She was very um, confident in who she was. Mm. There's like this one quote where she says, I was loose when she, you know, she's talking about enjoying a healthy sex life (laughs) and things like that. So she was very confident in herself. And I think that's also... That was a challenge for a lot of the white people who interviewed her. Mm. They wanted to ask her a question to put her back on her heels, to make her have to explain herself. She would not defend herself. She would not defend her work. It was all there. There was an infamous interview with her and Charlie Rose where she's just like giving him the business because he is just awful. So, yeah, I would encourage that if her later books are particularly challenging to get through I will say that um, because she is doing a lot more and I also I also wonder if there's just the the weight of being Toni Morrison and having to like follow Sula and Beloved and Song of Solomon these things that just came out Um, also she was I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but she was just, uh, you know, her, the bluest eye came out when she was 39. Yep. She was raising two yeah, and um, that was children her first novel. on her own. It was her first novel. She was already the editor at Random House, mm-hmm, I believe. Mm-hmm. So she was, you know, working this particular job that was already, you know, a lot of pressure. She was the first black person in that position, um, being a single mother, sneaking time. She always wrote longhand on yellow legal pads. <laughs> <laughs> so dealing with all that. And so she wrote... She published The Bluest Eye at 39, which was always a motivational thing for me because as someone who kind of took a a roundabout route to get to being a published writer, that just was like, if she can publish this incredible work at 39, I can keep going. Uh, You know, she was she had this great quote that said if there is a book that you haven't read but you want to read it you must be the one to write it I'm paraphrasing I think I messed that up but you know that was the thing and again that was inspirational for me because there are a lot of books that I want to read that I would love to see and I've taken her advice there are things Mm. you know I'm like I want to write this book because no one else is writing it I can't wait for anyone else to do it yeah so she's just phenomenal and um, it always strikes me when I say, you know, someone will ask me, who's your favorite author? And I'll say Toni Morrison. And usually it's a white person and they'll say, who is that? Is he any good? And they, you know, oh misgender God. her because they <laughs> hear Tony. Um, they think it's a man. And I'm just like, I, what, what is our American education system doing where they are not requiring Toni Morrison in high school I or think college. Some are, in, I mean, some are. I definitely read her in high school. Right. But, but so the formal innovations that you are talking about, Nicole, you know, her sort of like elliptical storytelling or like the very dense writing, the the dialogue that is sort of woven in in a, in a way that can be difficult to parse. She has really defended that in her interviews when people will say, like, aren't you afraid people are just going to put down your book or not be able to get through it? And she's like, you know, sometimes books are meant to be sat with and and take a long time to get through and to go back and flip through to earlier pages. And, um, you know, she, like you said, it, it was the form that she wrote in was part of her storytelling and part of the metaphors that she was elevating about, you know, the legacies of racism. But I think she also probably felt... Um, you know, and she has said that she felt pride in the fact that her book 
wasn't just something that you would flip through, that you were forced to sort of sit with it and think about it. I highly respect that, too, that she had that sort of respect for her readers, that she wasn't, you know, didn't intend for them to just flip through it and get through it quickly. She knew, you know, if if somebody wants to get through this book and wants to sit through it, they'll be rewarded for that. Does anyone else have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, I skipped class in college once to talk to her on NPR. And I asked her the significance of the oven in the book Paradise, and I felt like a real nerd. She answered it, but I'm sure she was irritated by the question. Um, Listeners, if you have a favorite Toni Morrison anecdote or a favorite book you'd like to share, please do share it with us. Our email address is thewaves@slate.com. Okay, it's time for our recommendations. Uh, Marsha. What do you have? I have a podcast this week. No history book. Um, But this is like (laughs) a history podcast. It's called Bottom of the Map. And it is a hip hop Southern cultures podcast with two fabulous women, Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley. And I love this podcast because I know nothing about music. I know very little about hip hop and I know very little about Southern hip hop. And so every episode, it's an education. It's beautifully produced. So there's lots of music. But I think one of the things I love is hearing women provide expertise on hip-hop particularly music journalism feels really over dominated by men and so to hear just really thoughtful funny and insightful looks at hip-hop culture from these two women is really exciting so i highly recommend from wabe bottom of the map a podcast on hip-hop culture in the south oh that sounds so good yeah june what have you brought well i have something which I have a feeling I may just be revealing that I was the last person on the face of the earth to discover something. What I'm about to say may be like saying, so you put water in this tray and put it in the freezer and then you get ice and it cools things. I might well be one step away from that. But into my 50s, I'm going to be a little vague on my age, but into my 50s, I have finally learned about the existence of frozen grapes and it has completely transformed my summer i had no idea how amazing frozen grapes were it is now like i just want to go home I like i'm like Wait, people do you need to watch eat me them or do you put them in things no i just eat them they're amazing wow but yeah i mean i'd heard of it before but it didn't seem like the kind of world-changing snack that you're making it up it's to be changed my summer wow. i mean partly because i have a really really sweet tooth and so I am liable at the end of the day to get into something that's not good in any way shape or form because I'm just having like sweet cravings and I have a feeling that eating frozen grapes is a better outcome for that (laughs) craving but they're amazing honestly I feel like I I could go out on the streets and proselytize for them in fact you might see me sneaking off early to go home and eat some frozen grapes or see me out in the plaza like (laughs) shouting testifying about frozen grapes because they're amazing who introduced you to them? Who taught you how to make them? <laughs> My girlfriend. Aww. But she hadn't had them before, and she's even older than me. Wow. Well, congratulations. So <laughs> Thank you. Um, I am recommending a game this week. We've got a real variety of forms. The game is called Code Names. I bought it for my parents last Christmas after Ruth Graham, one of my colleagues, recommended it in a slate piece for a package on family games. I played it with them this past weekend with a couple friends, and boy, was it great. Mm. This game 
won the sought-after Spiel de Jahres Prize, a German award Spiel for board games. Spiel de Prize. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I made up that pronunciation, but it's a German award for board games. Uh, it's, it's highly game prestigious. Yep. So the gist of the game is there's 25 cards on a table. Each one has a random noun on it. There's two teams. Each team has what's called a spy master. Only the spy master knows which cards belong to which team. And they use one-word clues to try to get their teammates to pick their team's words and not the other team's words. It's so much fun. It's got a really great sort of rhythm to it. It's in it. I think one of the best parts is it's only as difficult or as easy as you decide to make it. So it is, you know, it's very adjustable depending on who you have playing the game. It's a high risk, high reward, high creativity type of game. And the reason why I really wanted to recommend it is my dad doesn't always like games isn't always great at games like some I can only say this because I don't think he listens to this podcast sometimes when we play games it makes me doubt his intellectual capabilities because I think he feels self-conscious sometimes about getting something wrong but he loves and is very good at this particular game and so it makes me love it too because it's so much fun to play with him so it's called code names I recommend it for literally everybody Nicole, what do you have? I am going to recommend a novel. We mentioned earlier that Toni Morrison was an editor and she would she helped bring a lot of black authors into publishing that would not probably have had as much of a chance. Um, so this book is by one of the authors that Toni Morrison helped bring into the literary conversation. And that is Eva's Man by Gail Jones. Eva's Man, published in 1976, is about Eve, the main characters. Eva, when we first meet her, she is in jail for having killed her lover in a gruesome way. And so she's in jail for criminally insane. And we kind of get this flashback, these flashbacks of the way the men in her life have treated her as sexual property and how it all leads up to this moment where she kills her lover. So it is not a beach read. <laughs> it is um, <laughs> it is harrowing and it may be challenging, and, but it is an incredible, juicy, riveting novel. So to continue Toni Morrison's tradition of lifting authors, I hope that uh, people can go out and get this book. Again, it's Eva's Man by Gail Jones. That sounds great. All right, that's our show for today. Thank you to Cleo Levin and Asha Saluja, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. For Nicole Perkins, Marsha Chatlin, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.